Okay. Okay. You you start. It's your idea. Welcome to the All the Way Through podcast with me, Matthew DeMars, and Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hi. The idea behind this podcast is to go through the whole Louis Through back catalogue and basically see whether we were still as in love with Louis as we were in the first place. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. We are doing a podcast based on our mutual love of Louis Theroux and the fact yeah. that we both kind of noticed this when we worked together at The Scotsman and other titles. I didn't think I knew how obsessed you were at first until I started noticing t-shirts and posters and stickers. Right, this is a common misconception, I think, is that everybody thinks I'm obsessed with Louis Theroux and would like wear his skin and that like that I think that's what everyone thinks because I have multiple t-shirts with his face on yeah actually once I had one I just thought it was really funny to keep getting them so I am a real journalist and I'm not just like that person in the episode of Alan Partridge where they have loads of pictures of him yeah you are a little bit that person too but yeah if he came around to my house he would probably think I wanted to kill him that's the thing I think for me, Louis is so, such an important figure of the reason I wanted to get into journalism in the first place. And I know that's very corny, but I took I took my year out where I worked in Sports Direct and literally had no idea where I was going. And there was just reams of Louis documentaries on YouTube. And so I would just go through them and through them and through them. And I think that was the point where I was like, it's so fun to see someone in a position completely outside their norm. I'd love to do that on a daily basis. And I still think that's a massive draw for me. So shall we dive in with the first episode? Yeah. You set the scene. So it's 15th of January, 1998. Picture it. Spice Girls are in the charts. Cher Believe's probably been at number one for 25 weeks. Oh, God. And the the Independent newspaper gave this episode quite a good review. I think. Really? It's quite a funny review. Okay, let's get to that after we've decided what we think. Yeah, yeah, we can read it later. So um, the episode opens in Dallas, Texas, where we join a very young, nerdy-looking Louis Theroux. His opening line is, I'm not going to do the voice, but it's Dallas, Texas, four million souls, three million born again, which is a very cheesy line, but quite nice. It's quite a terrifying statistic, actually. It's a huge statistic. I was really shocked by that. I don't know how true that is. Maybe he was just using it for effect. But it is a massive amount of people. So he goes to KMPX TV, virtual channel 29. <laughs> uh, I looked into the background of KMP- KMPX TV. Right. Um, started in 1993. Started by Marcus and Joni Lamb, who we'll come to later. Yeah. But had a fair few controversies of its own (laughs) over the years which is quite interesting did it have controversies before louis turned up i think the biggest controversy before um was that they took a lot of money from another televangelist kenneth copeland who had his own string of controversies wow Um, it's all it all kind of just snowballs to be honest Okay, so this was clearly some sort of bloodthirsty industry that Louis was hoping to crack. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he goes in there with with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about being born again. Yeah, he does. And I think the, the, the premise he sets up is that he wants to see whether he can be saved. But I think, obviously, 
this being Louis and it would be a very short weird weekend series if he was saved um it's safe to say spoiler alert that does not happen that is quite a big spoiler that is a big spoiler okay cut that out that's gone um <laughs> but the funny thing is he starts with obviously going into this Lamb of God studios this KMPX TV um and instantly he doesn't get the interview he's meant to get he's stuck at the foyer speaking to secretary Anne Lee Anne Lee angels on your body (laughs) angels on your body Anne Lee who gives the most kind of forthright example of what an evangelical Christian secretary might actually look like angels on your body thank you bye she's quite sweet though isn't she really she is she's really sweet and very nice to Louis and there is almost this kind of slight love story thread which goes through which is Louis is looking for God, but finds Anne Lee and then decides he's happy with Anne Lee anyway. He does. I mean, obviously we'll get onto it later episodes. He does seem to have this thing with middle-aged women. They all just seem to love him. Yeah. Bearing in mind, he's 27 years old. Oh my God. That's it. We'll get to when he says this, but (laughs) I think that's actually good to set the scene. This is a 27 year old Louis Theroux, which I, I find absolutely bizarre for context. I think I'm I'm going to say both me and you, Alex, are turning 30 very soon, yes. scarily soon. So Louis is a younger man than we are at this point. And I definitely feel like, so up to this point, his TV experience has been working on TV Nation with Michael Moore, which was very young, controversial, um, purposely quite antagonistic. And I definitely still feel like he's got that hat on when he comes into this episode. Um, he just seems to be taking the piss. Like he says stuff like he's on a spiritual mission and you yeah. can just tell that he's trying to get a reaction out of Anne Lee, poor little Anne Lee yeah. reception. And then he kind of gives her enough rope almost to hang herself with in terms of, he doesn't ask her a lot, but then she reveals so much and is very kind of forthcoming with her beliefs and this, which is her catchphrase, angels on your body, which he says throughout. And then... My favourite bit, I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead just slightly, but when he goes to Anne Lee's car and she anoints it with holy oil before she drives. <laughs> angels on her car also. Yeah. Does Louis make the joke, angels on your car? I think he does, yeah. yeah he does, doesn't he? So Anne Lee becomes a very important character in this and is almost Louis' route in. I think this is something that you see in later episodes as well, this idea that Louis latches onto a character and then almost kind of like reports back on his his adventures to this person. Yeah. It's quite a mother-son relationship. So it takes about five minutes of him ambling around before we finally are introduced to what are meant to be the stars of KMPX TV. And that's really difficult to say. I don't know it how is. they say that on a regular basis. Marcus and Joni Lamb. What's your vibe of, of Marcus and Joni Lamb? Oh my God, the hatred from Joni Lamb for Louis Theroux is so extreme and so visceral. <laughs> he's, he meets her first and asks her where Marcus is and he's, he's, he kind of ambles around in a very Louis fashion and she is taking absolutely none of it at all. I think it's clear that Marcus likes Louis more. Yeah. He gets him to do the, the voiceovers for KMPX and... Uh compliments louis by saying almost as good as john majors himself john majors himself 
such a dated, inaccurate reference. And also not a very good one because John Major notoriously had a very, very boring voice. That was like one of his biggest trademarks as a prime minister was how boring he sounded. So Mark is telling Louis he's nearly as good as John Majors himself. I think it's actually a slight dig. I hope so. I hope he was smart enough for it to be a dig. Well, I think there is because the the tone Louis sets in that first bit is so... It is condescending, definitely. But his expressions, the way he smirks at the, what, what Marcus says, at points he's just guffawing with laughter during this conversation, which I just thought was very on the nose about, I'm here to have a good time. It is, and it's also very different to how he acts, even, I would say, in later Weird Weekends episodes, which is strange. But I guess this is what he decided he was doing for this episode. <laughs> So we kind of get to know a little bit about Marcus and Joni and then Louis going to go on TV. So he's in the makeup chair with this guy called Randy. Oh, it was my favourite, probably one of my favourite moments of the episode. So he's there talking to Randy and then this is when he says, I'm not married and I'm 27 years old. And then we both had a breakdown. We both had a breakdown and you realise that this is young, sexually active Louis. Oh God. I know, it makes me feel a little bit ill, especially because Louis is such a father figure. He is, and he's actually started to look like my actual dad the older he gets. It is one of my favourite moments of this episode when he asks Randy, are you born again? Then Randy, the makeup artist, says, yeah. And he says, what's it like to be born again? And Randy goes, it's nice. Randy's quite a cool guy because I think (laughs) Randy is very much, I'm born again, but... I'm not perfect, which I think is a very nice kind of, maybe the middle ground that you ne- don't actually see in the documentary. <laughs> I think just being being born again, it's nice. It's the perfect selling point for me. Yeah. I mean, if you were guaranteed that it was going to be nice forever, I think most people would take that, if that was true. So young Louis is ready to go on set for KMPX. I made a, a little note here that uh, they're, they're using canned applause on the soundtrack they are but then a crew member suggests that there's an audience but they're upstairs which i feel like is a lie unless they mean unless he meant god i don't know he clearly means god (laughs) it really adds to that false sense of of televangelism for me that they had like a fake audience but they really want they made that set really look like someone's house yeah it's quite it's a really polished set and then like you said the production values are quite stage and high for 90s telly but the thing that's really interesting is then marcus shows flashes a little bit of his real personality when he turns the cameras on louis mm-hmm. the documenter becomes the documentee marcus puts the bbc on telly and asks them outright are you going to do a good story or a negative story did you notice louis manic weird smiling during that segment I couldn't tell if if he just was really tickled or if he just didn't know how to react or it was a defence mechanism. I think partly a defence mechanism. I think Marcus maybe thought, this is my trump card. I can play the, you will be on my TV station and then asks him outright on the record, is this going to be good or bad? And I think Louis' response is, I think we'll just say whatever is on the tape, which is mainly Louis pulling faces and guffawing at him behind his back. It's almost like seeing someone with, I don't know, they're like not dressed properly or something. When you when you see the full camera crew, which you rarely get to see on Louis Theroux documentaries, yeah. 
and they're all just there like kind of nerdy 90s guys like not dressed for the occasion marcus and no. joni are, are looking like the nuclear family and then louis and his team are all very scruffy which is standard journalism where as we both know from working in newsrooms absolutely no one dresses up never no. so after this louis kind of has his confrontation and then we cut to the next scene. He goes on a, a further adventure to find more evangelical Christians. And he comes across another Randy, but maybe the best Randy in the whole thing, Randy James. So Randy is a bit of an older guy, um, very, very chill, very Texas, I think, probably. And his mission is basically to get people to be thinking about God and thinking about Christianity by using bumper stickers on cars. And the slogan is, I'm going to heaven. Want to come along? You've missold his delivery there. He, he goes all in. It's, I'm going to heaven. Want to come along? And it's got a beautiful, beautiful southern tone to it. And then there's the, the phone number that you can call, which is 1-800-LORD. Which you'll never forget. And once you've heard it, it will never disappear from your brain. Thank you for calling about going to heaven. God loves you no matter who you are or what you have done. In the first chapter of St. John, Jesus said, to go to heaven, you must be born again. To be sure you're going to heaven, leave your name and telephone number with your area code for a return call. If you are already a believer and would like to have a go tell gospel sticker for your vehicle, leave your name and phone number, including the area code for a return call. God bless you. The thing is, as well, Randy has his bumper sticker, which is, I'm going to heaven, want to come along. But then, openly admits on camera, he plagiarised this from a funny bumper sticker that said, I'm going crazy, want to come along. But basically the setup, I find quite weird, because the point of it is that he has all the bumper stickers and the t-shirts and whatever, and people phone a number, and he's got an answering machine in an office, and people just leave messages saying they love jesus or i don't know whatever they want to say about about christianity um and he he says that he gets a lot of uh prank calls as well but then what does he do with them from from that point on what's the the plan i think i think you're missing the bigger point here alex which is randy is a man ahead of his time randy is like the elon musk of the 1990s this man is basically building a social media network without any of the structure of a social media network. <laughs> he has the catchy catchphrase. He has a network of people out there spreading his message, retweeting his message, you might say. And then he has a network where people can get in touch with him, atting him through his voice answering machine. And all he gets is just to feel good about himself that people are phoning him. Exactly. He was craving the Instagram before anyone knew Instagram was a thing. Getting those dopamine hits. He was. This is exactly what Randy was doing. I think he's a visionary. I actually think Randy was way ahead of his time. I agree. I mean, and I love the t-shirt. I really did try to get us the t-shirts. Not that anyone would be able to see, but, you know, we'd be wearing them. Just imagine we are. Imagine that we are in those t-shirts. So he has this kind of business strategy. And he does sound like a mad startup founder because he says that he wants to grow from 80 people witnessing to 1 million in two years 
That's the kind of talk that gets you the big money on Dragon's Den. But then when Louis sort of presses him on how that's going to happen, there doesn't seem to be that much of a plan. Details, details. These things don't matter when you've got the vision like Randy does. And also Randy's whole whole thing is slacktivism before slacktivism was a thing. He says, the only thing you need to witness is drive around. I think what bothered me the most is that witnessing got talked about so much and yet never explained. No, it's a very vague concept. But they go and they they gather up some fellow witnesses and they all stick their bumper stickers on and they all drive around and then they all congratulate themselves. Yeah, so he meets he meets them at the courthouse. Again, this is the Facebook group of 1998. He cannot actually meet them online, so he just gathers people in a small group in a public location where they discuss the fact that they all love to witness. This is a Facebook group, just without having Facebook there. The man is insanely clever. I think Louis under, undermines him when he asks him about Christians disappearing from their cars and killing people during the rapture, because Randy is a, a man to be respected. The only thing I have written down from that segment is rapture trumpet noise from Louis Theroux. And the dead in Christ shall rise. Yeah. Gabriel's going to blow his horn. What's it going to sound like? I don't know. So, yeah, Louis does a rapture trumpet noise. Louis is asking him all, all these sorts of questions, trying to get us any answer. And then eventually Randy makes the sound of someone being raptured, which is, yo! And Louis openly laughs in his face. What were the, uh, what were the believers stirring? Oh, the, the believers were going up. Yo! <laughs> yo! Interestingly with this, I thought, is that Louis gets dressed up. He gets the full Randy gear on. He gets the t-shirt with the with the number on and the hat and kind of becomes Randy's protege. Yeah, and that struck me as very different again to, to later episodes that he would sort of jump in that willingly. But again, he's trying to live the lifestyle. That's the whole point of Weird Weekends. Yeah, that's true. I think I do have to start, start seeing it through this lens. He's not a passive observer in these early ones. He is, he wants to be out there witnessing with Randy. There's kind of bits throughout this, which is like the blueprint to Louis. And one of them is his decision to drive people everywhere. So he drives Randy's car while driving, while they're out witnessing. And I think Louis does this thing where he slightly takes on a, a role of um, serving people or offering a service to try and prove helpful. And you're right, part of it is that he wants to get involved, but also he does this in the later series as well. He will drive people anywhere. It's almost like the thing that really makes him uh, <laughs> acceptable to people is the fact that he can probably drive you places if you really need to go somewhere. <laughs> They're like, no, I wouldn't normally talk to the BBC, but if you but leave me a lift. <laughs> I really want to get tanked up somewhere and you can drive me home. It's nice. It's, nice. it's also quite a dad trait. I think most dads would drive you places. It's a dad trait, but it's also the uh, 17-year-old who's just passed their test and is desperate to drive anywhere. So it's kind of a bit of both. Okay, so the next sort of scene I'm quite excited about because it's the introduction of the family who are another group that Louis goes to hang out with. So the family are introduced as described almost in cultish uh, territory. They are meant to be this, the very kind of 
uh, strange end of evangelical Christianism. Well, do you know, so there's a very brief mention in the documentary, which I actually missed and was pointed out to me, that the family was originally called the Children of God. Okay. And the Children of God was a proper, proper cult. Really? Yeah, I'm just going to be really unprofessional and get the Wikipedia page up. No, please do. Um, Because I don't want to, you know, make anything up. So now called the Family International, from 1968 to 1977, they were called the Children of God. Founded communes, first called colonies. Um, It was abolished in 1978 because of an abuse of authority. But I think what really happened was that there was some pedophilia and possible incest that went on in that group okay so this is not the family which is presented in this documentary i don't think no not at all and maybe that's that is something which i really think is underplayed by louis in this whole documentary is evangelical christianity can lead to some very dark places yep so this one he kind of goes into this family and, and we're, we're told they're a cult. And Louis, in his getting involved mantra, decides to join in with the song that they're playing. He brings his acoustic guitar with him, which again is very much in the mold of a 17-year-old boy who's just passed his driving test going to a house party. <laughs> so they have this song, which is almost like a slightly prototype arcade fire thing, which is, it's nice to be here today with you, my friend. Are you going to sing it? Um, no, I'm not. Because actually I tried to find it on Spotify and it's not there and I was very disappointed. We'll get a clip. We'll get a tiny clip of it, don't worry. I'm sure we'll get sued by the BBC, but we pay our licence fee. So they do their song and then this is another thing which I think proves that this is the master blueprint of Louis Theroux is it's the first outing of George Michael's faith, which Louis goes back to on several occasions. He does his rendition, an acoustic rendition of George Michael faith. Again, I would say 17-year-old with a guitar who only knows how to play one song on the guitar. Yeah. But it is perfect. It's, it's, it's the perfect choice to mildly poke fun at religious people without really being that blatant about it. So what, this is 1998. So is this an openly gay George Michael by this point? Yeah, I think he is. So this is almost, it's more subversive than they they know. Because the lyrics of Faith are fairly Christianity friendly. Yeah. Except for things about wanting to touch your body. If that's not the body of Christ, you're not touching it, essentially. Just a nice wafer. <laughs> if you're not touching wafers, get your hands off. I could touch your body. He plays this song and they they all seem to very much enjoy it well i don't know so, so i have written down in my notes that the big the big dad man in the family whose name i've not written down um he reminded me a lot of fred ormison from um snl and portlandia i think he had a bit of an uneasy reaction to faith yeah like they were sort of waiting to get made fun of i think and maybe it didn't happen because they did seem to warm up to louis quite a lot yeah, Louis kind of fitted in quite well by the end, I think. 
there was a lot of um, male gaze, I'm going to say, on the the young, attractive members of the cult, which at first I thought was very strange. But then they go further into this. And while they're driving to the nightclub district of Deep Ellum, which sounds like a place where you want to spend your nights out. And then later Anne Lee goes, oh, I've not been there for a long time. The badlands of Deep Ellum. <laughs> so later when they go there, they talk about flirty fishing. Yeah. Did you notice this? I did. So apparently before the Children of God became the family, David Berg, who I guess was in charge at that point, had introduced a new method of bringing people in called flirty fishing, which encouraged female members to show God's love through sexual relationships with potential converts. Some flirty fishers would use escort agencies to meet potential converts. Wow, really? So Louis brings up the flirty fishing and I think they basically very shiftily say, oh no, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, so that's left with a kind of wink-nudge sort of, oh, I see. And so Louis talks about flirty fishing. They pan to the young members of the cult. Who are Uh, definitely significantly less clothed than the male members of the cult yeah well you know when in deep ellum (laughs) do as the deep ellums do so yeah the leader kind of says we no longer do this acknowledgement that they did do it though as well which is interesting yeah but louis doesn't really ask for more details does he 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 kind of lets that sit as it is and doesn't really press him on the idea of why was this effective or why did you do this in the first place or why did you stop if this was an effective method why did they then decide this was no longer that for them? I think that scene or that little bit sort of continues to be quite um, disturbing in a way. I think when it gets to the point of them talking to people who are obviously struggling with drug addiction and homelessness and poverty in the street and kind of bribing them, to be honest. They were saying all the right things and doing all the right things, but it just it left me feeling quite uneasy. Yeah, that was some of the darkest bit in the whole documentary, I think, and really kind of changed the mood of how, especially how I was viewing it. I think I was quite willing to go along with Louis' fun um, fun ride through this scene. But then out in the, in, the, in the streets and you see these people and the guy has no shoes, the girl says she is pregnant, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of real structure or proper assistance that is offered to them by this group it's more that they see them as easy easy targets almost yeah i think louis says to them well what's going to happen to these people now and they say we're going to help them find jobs we're going to help them get somewhere to live we're going to pray for them yeah and it's just yeah it feels quite predatory in a way it's it's very a proto-trump actually those sorts of promises Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. We'll get you through. So they kind of do this around the territory. They don't have much success, which I think the documentary shows that a lot of people look at them with disgust or indifference. But the young women seem to be able to lure in slightly drunk men of the Deep Ellum area. Shocking. So, So flirty fishing isn't officially off the cards, but... Does flirty fishing live? So from that kind of depressing scene, we go to the big sort of finish, which is the the revival with the lambs 
who are putting on a mad everybody goes and speaks in tongues and and gets very excited performance yeah and so the the start of this is we see louis turn up at someone's house we're unsure who the door swings open and who is there but our angels on your body secretary and lee the romance can i just say that louis worn an incredible shirt for the revival he does have amazing outfits in these early ones so he goes into Anne Lee. Anne Lee makes him uh, a coffee, I think. And then Anne talks about how she first got into the evangelical movement and says that she heard Billy Graham speak, which is an interesting thread because Anne Lee, angels on your body, seems very relaxed and friendly and good-natured, but was obviously converted by a man who was the father of the American evangelist movement. So this is a really influential guy, but also a very controversial figure in between that time as well. So controversial that his son is, who's doing the same, sort of carrying on the legacy now, is still controversial today. Has been in the news within the last couple of months in the UK. So yeah, she she got out the big guns. I got curious about Billy Graham and what it was like to hear him speak. I wanted to find out why he was so convincing and how he won so many people over over so many years. So I went to Glasgow when I was allowed to safely leave my home uh, back in the distant past and spoke to Kelvin Holdsworth, who is the provost of St Mary's Cathedral in Glasgow. Um, And he saw Billy Graham speak in the 80s. So he had a first person perspective of what it was like. You can kind of through Kelvin get an idea of how Anne Lee felt when she was uh, moved by the teachings of Billy Graham. Which Saved cool. by his teachings. Saved. I'm Kelvin Holdsworth. I'm the provost of St Mary's Cathedral here in Glasgow. And um, I've been here for nearly 14 years now. So that means I'm the senior priest in quite a big, busy city congregation. I've been a member of the Scottish Episcopal Church for... Uh, more than 25 years now. I joined the church when I was at university. And you said that you saw Billy Graham speak in the 80s? Yeah, in 1985, um, I did. I was, uh, in fact, not just saw him speak, I was actually part of the whole thing. I was okay. I was singing in the choir, believe it or not. <laughs> there was a huge showmanship about all of this. Um, and the idea was that there would be a choir of a thousand voices. Well, one of those thousand voices in those days was me. Um, and I remember going to rehearsals and all this kind of thing, for months and months and months. And then the, the whole thing would happen in a big football stadium. All the seats, all the way up behind Billy Graham himself, were full of the choir. So there was this kind of backing group for whatever was going on. And there would be gospel singers from the States as well. And, you know, big names in those days were George Beverly Shea, and the choir would kind of come in and join in with the big chorus. And You know, there was, there was an element of of the big show about it. Which stadium? Where was the... That was in Sheffield, actually. I... I had been living in Yorkshire for a bit then, and um, it was at Bramall Lane in Sheffield in 1985. But I mean, Billy Graham went around the world doing this kind of thing. Wherever local churches would invite him, that's that's one of the differences between him and his son Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham kind of seems to announce where he wants to go and kind of launches himself at them. Billy Graham was uh, a bit easier to deal with, I think, and would tend to go where local churches were going to support him and actually wanted him to come and invited him and there was at that time a movement to bring him to the UK and you know he would preach 
I mean, the, the, the routine was over a week or so, they would book this football stadium, they would put on this, you know, big musical show, if you like, and then he would preach at the end of the evening. And it was an enormous organisation would go into that from all the local churches, although actually the, the event itself was really quite simple. Mm-hmm. And were there a lot of people there? Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the stadiums were full. Yeah. Um, thousands, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. What was it like? Was he, I mean, I assume he was quite a sort of captivating... He was, he was a pretty captivating speaker. I mean, you don't get to go around the world preaching like that unless you're, <laughs> unless you're any good. Right. Um, and it was a fairly simple message. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I preach regularly and I don't preach anything like that. <laughs> um, that kind of religion isn't really where I'm at now in my life. Um, but it was a fairly simple message. The core bits of it I would still agree with, in a way. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, he was he was standing there saying, this person, Jesus Christ, matters. And it was the classic call. I mean, he would, you know, call people down onto the football pitch if they, you know, wanted to explore that further. Tonight I want to talk primarily to young people, and I want you to turn with me to the sixth chapter of Matthew and Jesus is speaking and he says this no man can serve two masters I mean again it seems very simple you know just the call to come onto the football pitch but actually there was a whole industry behind that of people who'd been trained to go and meet those people and talk to those people and would try and incorporate those people into a church community and that kind of thing so there was a there was a um, it was a big operation it wasn't it wasn't just a man standing in a, in a football stadium Shouting into a microphone. There was this whole thing going on with it. So interesting you should say that because that's one element of the uh, Luther doc where um, they go to a sort of revival again, sort of Operation Big Show yeah. type thing. And there's a lot of physical elements to what the preacher's doing, where mm. he's, he's sort of healing people, I yeah. guess. Or was there any of that? Was that no, like... not at all. Um, I mean, you do get that. Some of the televangelists are. I mean, they're quite macho figures, aren't they? You know, that it's quite an aggressive kind of look. Billy Graham wasn't actually like that. I would describe him as a very a genteel man, actually. He, he seemed, in all his dealings with people, to be really quite respectful. I think that he was a different breed to some of the more aggressive evangelists. So, no, I wouldn't say that it was like that. It wasn't a huge pressure, either. Um, he just laid out what he believed and invited people to, to engage with that. Mm-hmm. I tend to think Franklin Graham's a bit of a... a it feels a bit like a dinosaur when it comes to these kind of things. It feels like he's living in an age and not the age that we're living in. I mean, there's all kinds of people that are distressed about the idea of him coming to preach because he hasn't seemed to be kind to gay people. He hasn't seemed to have a very constructive message in a, a multi-faith society. Um, and it's understandable why people feel upset about that. Unfortunately, I think that protesting against him gives him quite a lot more oxygen and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm not actually taking up placards against him because it just gives him more of the oxygen. It kind of feeds him, really. So in order to find out a bit more about Franklin Graham, who has been in the news a lot recently, especially around the fact that he had planned a tour of the UK, essentially he was banned from all venues on the grounds of hate speech, particularly for his views on LGBT rights, which he is very against. So I spoke to a guy called Matthew Beard, who is the executive director of a platform called All Out, which is essentially a platform that allows thousands of people around the world to stand up for LGBT rights. So he put together a petition to have Franklin Graham pulled from the O2 in London, which gathered over 8,000 signatures and eventually led to him being not only pulled from the O2, but various other venues around the UK. 
So I want to speak to Matthew a bit about how this petition came about and how he feels around the legacy of evangelical Christianity and how it's moved from TV into the social media age. My name is Matt Beard and I'm the executive director with All Out. All Out is a campaigning organization and um, our mission is to work towards a world in which nobody anywhere has to sacrifice their family, their freedom, their safety or their dignity because of who they are or who they love. And we very much use the internet and the power of digital technology to achieve that mission. We, we work on uh, the basis of people power. So we believe that when lots of small voices come together, that can make a very loud noise. It can start to change the conversation, change hearts and minds, and really impact on um, the lived experience of LGBT people around the world. What can you tell me about this particular petition in terms of uh, who Franklin Graham is and why you felt the need to put this petition together in the first place? Franklin Graham is the son of the, the very famous or infamous uh, tele-evangelist uh, Billy Graham. He's a, a close ally of um, Donald Trump and his plan that I heard about in the media was that he would be coming to the UK on a multi-venue tour um, to spread his message. That message is clearly a message of hate towards LGBT communities. So just give you give you a couple of examples of his track record, which I, you know I think speaks for itself. Just very recently, he told Democratic nomination candidate Pete Buttigieg that he must repent or face eternal damnation for flaunting his homosexuality. Wow. Um, he, he's talked about Russia. He's praised Putin's so-called anti-gay propaganda law. Uh, this is a piece of legislation in Russia that encourages the most brutal hatred and crime and forces LGBT Russians to live in fear. He's talked about the LGBT community causing a moral 9-11. He frequently points out biblical passages in which God kills gay people. And while doing all of that, uh, you know, he, in his very robust defense of what he calls traditional marriage, he turns a very blind eye towards someone he clearly adores, Donald Trump, who is not the paragon of, of uh, traditional marriage. No. So that's that's why I decided that I wanted to stand up against that hate. And I wanted to uh, persuade, in this case, specifically the O2 venue in London, where I live, not to host Billy Graham and not to enable those kind of messages. How common is this strategy for you or for All Out in general? of uh, looking to have controversial figures removed from their platform, essentially. I would reject the idea that this is a form of no platforming that is in any way based on religious discrimination. I don't believe that holds. You know, across the UK, Christian gatherings take place every week in many different kinds of venues. And I believe passionately that all people of faith have the right to practice their religion. This campaign does not target being a Christian or Christianity, it targets hate because the kind of hate that Franklin Graham propagates is not theoretical. Across the UK, we've already seen over the last two or three years a marked and very noticeable increase in anti-LGBT hate crime. Uh, and I just believe that we need to recognize that these words of hatred, exclusion and violence have consequences for other people. Whether or not Franklin himself condones violence, his words are, are really like fuel and justification to those who do. It's our community, it's LGBT people, it's queer people who feel the, the punches and the kicks that result from those kind of forms of hate speech. So I think when he's kind of firing back 
accusations of religious discrimination, we need to really recognize that it's LGBT people who are on the front line of a marked increase in, in, in violence and intimidation. Billy Graham, Franklin Graham's father, is mentioned uh, throughout this Louis Theroux documentary, mm -hmm. often in glowing terms and actually uh, kind of reading the general information about him. Billy Graham is a guy who worked with Martin Luther King, presidents through from uh, Harry Truman all the way up to Barack Obama and has, I would say, an overwhelmingly positive reputation in the United States. How different is his son's message from that? Or do you think this is a, a particularly glowing view of a figure and a, and a kind of a strand of evangelical Christianity? I mean, I believe that the, 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 the rehabilitation of Billy Graham through that kind of process that you've talked about is probably overdone. I mean, this is someone who became a multimillionaire on the back of preaching a gospel that was based on, just like his son now, of exclusion of those who choose not to live their lives based on, a, on the biblical interpretation that he selected for himself. I think what's happened in terms of this generational shift is that Franklin Graham's work and public um, pronouncements are very much part of the kind of culture war that has intensified in the United States, particularly over the last four or five years, and particularly since the current administration came into office, in which there is, you know, in the US, a, a, a really much stronger polarization between those who believe in secular, progressive human rights-based values on one side, and those on the other side who are increasingly kind of retrenching, I guess, into a, a very theological, strict, biblical interpretation of the way society should be run and managed. And I think the more extreme pronouncements of, of Franklin Graham compared to his father are probably just a consequence of that culture war in which both sides are being polarised. This documentary is from the mid-1990s. How powerful is this kind of tele-evangelism now in an era where TV as a medium has completely collapsed in favour of social media? And do you think they've changed strategy and been successful with that? Absolutely. Uh, Franklin Graham has over 7 million social media followers and can use social media very effectively to get his message out. I think television is pretty much dead in terms of a tool for the evangelical Christian movement, but they are very, very significantly embracing the power of digital to get that message over. And another thing that Anne Lee talks about is she's kind of said, She's had her demons in the past, which which she's um, looking to get over. I was quite intrigued by Anne Lee talking about her dark past. I was like, I kind of want to know more in quite a nosy way. Yeah, the, I don't think there was anything to be gained except for slightly seeing under the surface of Angels in Of Your Body, Anne Lee. She has another great line. They're in the car and they get to the venue of the the revival. And she says, this is where we're going to have a Holy Ghost time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the love for Anne Lee comes out at the Revival Day service. So they go in to the Revival Day service. This is everything you've imagined stereotypical evangelist mass to be. It is that. Oh my God. It's there's, insane. There's music. There's lots of loud preaching. Um, there is prayers being shouted out. Um and then there is the Marcus Lamb's amazing healing technique, which is almost like a stunning Bruce Lee move where he touches people and then shouts, touch and the Holy Ghost. And then they fall <laughs> down in a heap after being touched. Touch and the Holy Ghost. Touch 
It's very dramatic. It's really incredible. And people are actually speaking in tongues as well, including Anne Lee. Yeah. As soon as they get there, yeah, she's they... pretty much speaking in tongues. It's, it becomes almost this like mass hysteria thing. And Louis sits on the sidelines for a while. Um, and then Anne Lee gives him this look of sheer mum disappointment. It's very much an, I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. Because Louis was, doesn't pray along with everyone else there. At which point, Louis cracks. He cracks under the pressure and he starts to pray. He says the words and then in his narration, he kind of justifies why he did this and says, um, maybe I didn't want to let people down. Um, and the words didn't mean anything, but I joined in with the prayer. But everyone's been there, right? To a certain extent, like if I was in a church situation for whatever reason now, say at a wedding or something, and people started saying the Lord's Prayer, I'd probably join in. Yeah, well, I think there there is something to be said for that. And there is something very British about feeling like I don't want to let the side down, so I will just say it. It is a very knee-jerk thing, I think, to just join in. Maybe that's why he didn't really want to do it. It's because almost as a journalist, you really have to try and not. It's almost like the cracks start to form already, where it's like, well, I'm meant to be experiencing this lifestyle, but actually I don't want to jump into deep Christianity here. It's almost the flaw in the whole series is this idea I want to get involved, I want to be part of it, but how involved can I be and still be objective? So Marcus is around touching in the Holy Ghost in people. Louis leaves for a minute to get some air, runs into Joni. Joni still, still hates, hates him. <laughs> she still hates so his much. guts. Um, but she's, she's, she's civil, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she's civil, but her eyes are daggers into Louis's heart and there is no love lost between the two of them whatsoever. And then he gets a late, he kind of gets a last meeting with Marcus, which is Louis's time. This is the bit where he's going to hit him with the big questions. Marcus asks him about what he thought of the service and, and Louis asks him about the power of suggestion, how much of the people falling over and the, and the tongues and everything is because you are placing this on them and how much power do you have? And I think Louis saves it at the end. He does say the prayer and he does get a little bit carried away in trying to please everyone at certain points with his conversations with Anne Lee and uh, the family and Randy James. But at the last moment, with his last moment with Marcus, he does kind of ask the big questions. Whether or not Marcus gives any answers that mean anything is on him. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Marcus Lamb, by the way, very active on Twitter now. Looks absolutely terrifying. Has 59,000 followers. Marcus has had uh, trouble with the law in in the time since this documentary was made. He has had quite a lot of trouble with the law. Yeah. And with his wife. Yeah. So in 2010, Marcus Lamb admits adultery and reveals a $7.5 million extortion plot. So things get pretty wild for Marcus. But there is a final thing in this bit which I thought was really interesting. I also had one last thing, but let's find out if it was the same. You go first. Is it the shaking woman? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the worst bit, right? It's a really horrible bit. So they they, they kind of, Louis is, is, is saying his final goodbyes to everyone. And there is a woman who is, is convulsing, apparently with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then she reveals, I used to be a homosexual. I used to smoke pot, was her things that she said. 
But she's been healed and delivered. She's been healed and delivered. She's kind of convulsing and Louis's response is to ask her, do you need a joint? He asks her if she wants to smoke in a very glib joke. He's 27 though, come on. He's 27 and, and this is the bit where you find that you do see that this is not the fully polished Louis. Perspectives on LGBT stuff have changed so much even since 1998, like so much. But I was shocked when she said, I used to be homosexual, but I've been healed. I was like, oh my God, that's dark. And then, yeah, there's just a, a joke after it and that's it. Yeah. And maybe I, that's on purpose. I, I don't know. I think it maybe is. I and I, But I think it is Louis not knowing how to deal with that situation. I wasn't surprised that she said she'd been healed from homosexuality because as we know gay conversion therapy is something that still happens to this day and the message from religious figures is still uh, homosexuality is quote-unquote bad but louis reaction to it is very telling of the fact that this is not a seasoned through we're seeing um i think there is a huge amount of thread to unpick there and she is the kind of person that actually could have had her own interview and could have been really interesting to speak to about what was her past life? Why does she feel that she needed to be saved from whatever she was? Whoever she is as, an, as, a, as a person. Um, but we don't get that. We get this fleeting glimpse of her. And I think this is the, the thing that I take away from the documentary the most is the things that aren't talked about. I think the bigger things for me were they didn't mention money at all. And there's so much. If you even just start reading into uh, televangelism in the States... And just general evangelical Christianity, there's so much dodgy money stuff that goes on yeah. still. And he didn't speak to anybody that was anti-evangelical at all. No. In the whole documentary. <laughs> no, but maybe in, in Louis' defence, because if we're setting that the mantra of Weird Weekends is to be involved in the movement, maybe you wouldn't see many people... And, and, and as, he, as he says in the beginning, this is a population of three million in Dallas alone that have been saved. That's just one city. So the idea that you would face much protest or, or contradiction is probably limited. We should have maybe checked Randy's voicemails because there was a few people who sent him messages along the lines of, uh, you suck, F you. Uh, <laughs> he clearly didn't want to come along with Randy to heaven. So I think we um, we said we were going to decide ultimately if each episode was good Louis or bad Louis. Do, should we do that now? Yeah, I think we should maybe decide what we mean by good Louis, bad Louis. <laughs> okay. Be- because I think both of us are clearly Louis Theroux fans and I, I feel like we don't want to get lost in too much good Louis. Otherwise it loses all meaning. Yeah. So I think bad Louis has got to be something that... Sh- doesn't properly investigate the subject he's going into. But look, maybe the cue, the clue is in the name. This is a weekend. How much can you really commit to something in two days? True. At best, it's a Friday afternoon. Maybe he takes off Monday and he's back on late on Monday. But this is a short amount of time to fully immerse yourself in a movement. So maybe this is more picture postcard sort of stuff than really getting totally involved. And in that case, we get we do get a snapshot of what the movement is and, and the big players. Obviously, Marcus and Joni Lamb are huge. And then the family, I think, even though that is skirted upon, 
are obviously a very influential movement in this whole evangelism scene. So maybe it's the right people to talk to, but maybe there just isn't the time to talk about the things they really need to talk about. Rather than good Louis or bad Louis, I would say it's young Louis. And even at the ripe old age of 29 and a bit, I feel like he feels young here. Yeah. I mean, this is the first episode and already we're going back on our set format of good Louis or bad Louis. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, if you asked me, honestly, my knee-jerk reaction would be bad Louis. Well, that's good. This is about gut reactions. Okay, I, I say bad. I think... And I know that there's um, so many factors, like he probably didn't have the ultimate say on the topic and he didn't edit it probably and maybe he comes off differently, but I think it comes off as quite flippant and yeah, I just felt like it, it's it, there should have been more. I think people potentially could have been quite upset about this for a myriad reasons. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think the gut reaction is bad, Louis, but... As we know, as people starting out and doing their first episode or something, these things take time. You've got to iron out the creases. I agree. So let's let's have faith and watch some more episodes. Okay, we will. So, angels on your body, Louis. Let's hope that things pick up. We're going to have a Holy Ghost time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear that review, by the way? Yes, please. Um, let's see. So, it was Sunday the 18th of January, 1988, 1998, not 88. David Aran- Aronovich wrote this review. Um, he watched Babe Watch on ITV first. Louis Theroux also has cold hands, it starts. It's a segue from the last bit. The trick to Louis Theroux's weird weekends is that the former reporter on Michael Moore's show's seeks out the strange lifestyle and suggests that he is open to embracing it himself. His subjects take him to their bosom, charmed by his naivety, while all the time he gently subverts their beliefs for the amusement of the viewer. This makes him, I suppose, something of an exploitative liar, albeit an amusing one. Marcus and Joni had through partly sussed, so I felt no sympathy for them. But he also befriended Anne Lee, Lamb's 59-year-old receptionist, who took a real shine to him and who clearly believed that he might be converted. But of course, he was not in any way available for conversion. Far from it. His purpose, had he been honest to Anne Lee, was to take the piss. And while I enjoyed the programme, I ended up with the uneasy feeling that she had more real angels on her body than I, or Louis. Wow. That's so succinct and probably what we've been trying to say in the last half an hour, hour. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at allthroughpod and let us know what you thought of the first episode. We're looking forward to hearing from you.